Dennis Kinlaw was the president of Asbury College for 18 years, leading the school through the 1970 revival. In 1983, he founded the Francis Asbury Society to promote the message of scriptural holiness. We hope you enjoy this message from Dr. Kinlaw. E. Stanley Jones was a great evangelist missionary in the early part, first half of the last century, and in the middle part. He had uh, a saying, impression without expression means depression. Impression without expression means depression. Now, the reason that was significant to him was because he was an evangelist, and he believed that people needed to make decisions. And that uh, it's one thing to have your heart, heart stirred, but there should be some way or other in which you make a commitment as a result of that stirring of your heart. Now, I don't know what kind of commitment you need to make. I know enough about the way God works that you can have in any crowd persons who've never really come to know Christ. In one of these conferences, I finished speaking one night, sat down at the table downstairs, and a doctor walked over to me, leaned across the table and said, Dennis, I never have really made the decision to let Christ enter and be the Lord of my life. Could be that somebody here in this group, I'd be surprised if there isn't, that he really isn't the Lord and Savior of your life. You ought not to let these days pass without getting that decision behind you, because you'll find it's like a birth. It's one thing for a fetus to be in a womb, and it's another thing for him to be in the big world. And uh, that kind of decision... Uh, it sets you free and liberates you and puts you into a new world. It may be some other kind of decision, but I hope these hours that we have together will be decision time, and you need to express it to somebody. Any person on the staff here would be willing to pray with you and uh, find it a joy to do that. There are other people in this group. Maybe it should be your wife or your husband or a friend that's with you, but... Uh, Talk out and express what God is saying to you. And as you do, you will find a freedom that comes with that. Let me read for you uh, two passages of Scripture. One of them comes from the 15th chapter. Jesus is speaking, as you know, in the upper room to his disciples that last night. Look uh, at verse 9 of chapter 15. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. You notice the pattern for his love for us is the love that his Father has for him. Divine love is the pattern for love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. I have said these things to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. You know, we think of keeping his commandments as an onus, a burden. Jesus thought of keeping the commandments of his Father as a joy and thought it would be a joy to us if we would give ourselves thus to him. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And what is the love with which he has loved us? It is that self-sacrificing love in which he gave himself for us. No one has greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I do not call you servants any longer, because the servant does not know what the master is doing, but I have called you friends, 
because I have made known to you everything that I have heard from my Father. Isn't that interesting? Friends are people that you share with, aren't they? I love the passage in Genesis 18 where God has come down to tell Abraham that the next year Sarah is going to have the baby Isaac and the plan for the redemption of the world will be on its way. And so there's great joy in God's heart that that's set. And now he, the one who is planning the redemption of the world, is leaving Abraham's camp. And as he walks toward the edge of the camp, Abraham walks with him. And God talks to himself and says, Abraham's my friend. Shall I not share with him where I'm going and what I'm going to do? Isn't it interesting to be intimate enough with God that God shares with you this kind of thing? And so he says, I've got a problem. There's Sodom and Gomorrah down there. And if it's as bad as they tell me it is, then I'm going to have to do something drastic. And how fortunate that was in that Abraham now knows that his nephew and that nephew's family is in serious danger. So we need to be close enough to God that he intimates, he shares with us these things. And so he says about it, I've shared everything the Father gave me, I've shared it with you. I do not call you servants any longer because the servant does not know what the master is doing. But I have called you friends because I have made known to you everything that I have heard from my father. You did not choose me. The initiative was always with him, but I chose you. And I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, so that the father will give you whatever you ask in my name. I am giving you these commands so that you may love one another. Now, the other passage is the very familiar third chapter of John. Look with me for a moment at the opening verses. Now, there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. Jesus answered him, Very truly, Nicodemus, I tell you, No one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Nicodemus said to him, How can anyone be born after having grown old? Can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and of the Spirit. That what is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be astonished that I said to you, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone that is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher in Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Will you pray with me for a moment? Thank you again, our Father, for your word, precious word. Thank you that it is the manger in which we find the Christ, in which he is able to come to us through his Spirit, so that we can know you, Father, Son, and Spirit, and we can have fellowship with you. Get all the barriers down for us today to where we have an immediate relationship with you, one of joy and trust, and we will give you praise in Christ's name. Amen. Last night, we started out on the matter of knowing him more, and we began with who he is. And we indicated that it's very important that we know who the God is that we want to know, because we can want to know a God who doesn't exist. 
And many people want to know a God who really isn't there. So if we want to know God, we ought to know who the God is that we want to exist. You know, there is no generic God, though our society thinks there is. Our culture thinks that one group worships one God and another and another and another, and yet behind it all there's one, and they all are really worshiping. All the roads lead the same way to the ultimate, and so there is a generic God. There is nothing in the Scripture to indicate that there is a generic God. There is a God who has a particular name and is a particular personhood. Like in the Old Testament, the thing that God gave to the children of Israel, they gave his name. And when you get a name, you get an individual, don't you? A person. And so it's very specific. And language is important here. Sometimes we forget and miss some of the things that we need to have other people point out to us. It's interesting what you can learn from the enemies of the Christian faith. Nietzsche was one of the most hostile persons to the Christian gospel that ever lived, I suppose. But he said one fascinating thing that uh, opened up a new world for me in which he said, if we ever get rid of the idea of God, the first thing we have to do is get rid of grammar. Now that struck me because I used to teach them grammar. I taught Hebrew grammar. (laughs) And I thought, You need grammar in order to know God, and grammar is a defense of the concept of God? Yes, because you see, grammar is what makes communication meaningful. If your grammar's wrong, your communication is either unclear or wrong. And so he is saying, if we ever get rid of the concept of this center who holds all things together, we'll have to get rid of what holds language together so that we can no longer communicate with each other, and you don't know what I mean when I speak, and I don't know what you mean when you speak. And that's what happens when we lose God. Now, if grammar's important, vocabulary is important. The thing the early Christians had to do was develop a whole new language of, of words to express what they were saying. Like there was no word in the Greek language to express love the way Jesus talks about it, in this passage where he's talking to his friends, what we speak of using the Greek term agape love. That's that love that cares more about the other person than it does himself. Because the love of the world is where we love the other person for what that person does for us, and then we use that other person to meet our needs. But this is a love that comes out of God, and if you ever see it, its origin was in God. If you ever pick up a bit of it in me, it won't be originating in me. It'll be coming from God because he's the source of it all. And that love is where there's something in which suddenly you care more about somebody else than you do yourself. And so uh, they had to develop their own language. Now, this concept of a generic God, there is a New Testament scholar in Britain today, a wonderful New Testament scholar by the name of N.T. Wright. His friends call him Tom. For a while, he was a chaplain of one of the colleges in Oxford. And as a chaplain, he would each fall at the beginning of the term, sit down with every student in the college and talk to him about the religious program that he led. He said, occasionally I'd get a kid who'd listen politely, you know, and I'd sense that I wasn't really getting to him. And at the end, the kid would look at me and say, well, uh, Dr. Wright, I appreciate this, but you see, you probably won't be seeing much of me this fall because I'm an atheist. 
He said, you know, at first I didn't quite know how to handle that. And then I, the Lord gave me a good idea. When the kid would look at me and say, I'm an atheist, I'd look back and say, oh, that's very interesting. Which God is it that you don't believe in? And then the kid would sort of stumblingly, you know, begin to mutter and describe the God he didn't believe in. And Tom would say, you know, that's great. You and I may have a lot more in common than we ever anticipated because I don't believe in that God either. So you see, we need to know who it is in whom we believe and who it is that we want intimacy with. Now, uh, there's a quotation from the Archbishop of Canterbury in the last century that I've never gotten over. He said in one place, if your concept of God is wrong, the more religion you get, the more dangerous you are to yourself and to other people. I wish I could sink that into everybody's heart and mind so you couldn't forget it. I think it's one of the most significant quotations I ever read. If your concept of God is wrong, the more religion you get, the more dangerous you are to yourself and to others. And what's the major problem in the world today? It's a religious problem, isn't it? Because that guy in that cave in Afghanistan who's taken on the most powerful nation in human history and brought it momentarily to its knees, it's his concept of God, you see. So that if nobody's safe when the fear of God is gone, nobody may be safe when you're worshiping the wrong one. So uh, it's important that we know who he is. Our conclusion last night was that uh, the God that we want to know if we are to be Christians, is the God who manifested himself in Jesus Christ, in Mary's own son, one of us, God come in the flesh, flesh like yours and mine, lived a life here just like yours, faced every basic question you've ever faced, and faced every basic temptation that you have ever faced or will face. And John, in speaking about this, and the Gospel of John is the one that spelled it out most clearly, as we said last night, no man has seen God at any time. He is the immortal, invisible, God-only wise, in light inaccessible, hid from all eyes, as we sang last night. He's the one no one has ever seen him, but Jesus Christ has made him known to us. So if you want to know God, you have to look at Jesus. I was interested that uh, Tom... Tyrants, who probably the most outstanding Presbyterian in the last hundred years, a great theologian from Scotland. He was uh, a chaplain in the Second World War, and he found himself with a kid, 19 years old, who had been badly injured and was actually dying on his hands. Tyrant said, I looked at him and realized he had only a few minutes, and he said the kid knew he had only a few minutes. And so he said the kid was in panic, of course, facing death, 19 years of age. And the kid looked up at him and said, Padre, is God like Jesus? And you can understand the why of the question. Because if God is some distant holy judge sitting on a throne up there waiting to deal with us because of, then what hope would a kid like that have? But then there's Jesus. Tom Torrance said to me, he said, as I uh, looked into that kid's face, I found myself saying, Son, when you've seen Jesus, 
You've seen all there is to see of God. And there is no God lurking behind the back of Jesus that you have to worry about. Now, what fascinated me is I've read many of his books. And you'll find every once in a while in this very serious, systematic theology, (laughs) you'll find a phrase, lurking behind the back of Jesus. So that experience on the battlefield influenced him for the rest of his theological career, an incredible, I consider him the greatest, really the greatest theologian of the 19th century. But uh, he, uh, there is that. You see, that's what Jesus said. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So why do I get interested in Jesus? I get interested in Jesus because I want to know Jesus, but I want to know the one who sent him to me and who gave him to me because I wouldn't have him if it weren't for the Father who gave him to me. And I want to know Jesus because he's the one who gives to me the Holy Spirit, who can work out in my life that holy part, which is the adjective that describes love, or it's the a noun which the adjective loving describes. Holy love, loving holiness, whichever way you want to work that. Now, God has revealed himself in that Son. Now, who is that God? There are two major watersheds in biblical revelation. And they're turning points in history. There are hinge points in history when history is never the same again. You see it in smaller ways, like in the Reformation. The church, the world was different after Luther and Calvin than it was before. The world is different after September the 11th. But there are two that are the massive ones. And all the other changes come as subcategories under these. And the first of these is with Moses. If you read Genesis well, you will not find that Abraham in his expressions is crystal clear about the God who is revealed in Moses. He knows there is a God, but you don't get him described intimately and definitively. But when you come to Moses, there's a watershed. And so, there's one God. Moses gave to us the Pentateuch, gave to us Genesis In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. And the interesting thing is that in that, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The word God is plural, but the verb created is singular. Now, the scholars have their own answers for that. But the word for God in Genesis is a plural word. Is this an indication lurking there? of the triune character of God, that in his oneness there is that diversity. And then you get the verb created, and it's in the singular, that in the diversity within the nature of God, the three persons, there is a oneness. He is one and one alone. Now, the first thing that had to be one was the fact of the oneness, the unity of God that is one and one alone. And so you get that all through the Old Testament. He has no rival or competitor. He sits alone upon the throne of the universe and rules over all. To the extent that in the Old Testament, Old Testament will attribute everything to him because there's nobody else to attribute it to. And so the prophet will say, is evil in the city? Who has done it? God has done it because there isn't anybody else that you can blame it to. Ultimately, he made this world and he is in sovereign control of it. But then there is a second watershed and that second watershed comes with Jesus. And with him we find that in that unity there is that diversity, that in the very oneness of God there's a father and son relationship, and there is a father, son, and a spirit, the three in one and the one in the three. 
And it is that God, that triune God who is love, who seeks me and wants me and wants to have fellowship with me. Now, you know, I live in a world where I see an important person and I'd like to be a friend of his, but the important person doesn't have any interest in being my friend. But we live in a universe where the important person wants a friendship with the least and the lowest of us all. A total reversal of the way our culture runs and the way we tend to think. And that one is the one who initiates the seeking of us, and when we find him, he is that other-oriented holy love. And he wants a close relationship with us, closer than most of us, than I ever dreamed through most of my Christian life. Now, in your notes, you've got an indication that there are certain figures that are used in Scripture to indicate how close he wants to be to us. And the first of these figures that is used is the one that is I read about in John 15, where Jesus is now talking with his friends, his disciples. He's lived with them for three years, and they know, have come to know him. And, of course, he knows them well. They've eaten together, they've slept together, they've traveled together, they've talked together, they've hurt together, they've wandered together, they've uh, worked together. And now as he's with them, he says, I don't want to call you servant. I want a more intimate relationship with you. And so from now on, I call you friends. Now, when he does that, he's picking up a biblical theme. If you're interested in these passages, if you'll look at Isaiah 41.8, you will find that that's the term which is used for Abraham. And if you look at Second Chronicles 20 and 7, you'll find again that that is the word which is used for Abraham. He is called the friend of God. And if you will look at James 2, verse 3, you will find that James, in talking about Abraham, describes him as the friend of God. Now, that's very remarkable. I don't know about you, but I get fascinated by the surprises in the Scripture. <laughs> and the interesting thing to me is I keep finding them. <laughs> I'm astounded at the things that are in the text I've never seen. And uh, suddenly, at my stage of the game, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm shocked at how much I've learned since I was 75. I must tell you one story, family story. I have a grandson who graduated from college, university, and went away to... He became a teacher of missionary kids in Mexico City. And so two years ago, we got a phone call from him saying, could I come spend spring break with you? And so Elsie and I were flattered. How often does a grandmother and a grandfather have a grandson who wants to come spend Nine days with you. And so we said, oh, we'd love to have you. Then we began thinking, nine days. What do you do with a 24-year-old when you're 7 and 78 for nine days with a 24-year-old? Then I thought, what's he going to do with us? So he came. And so the first night we sat down and had supper together and began to talk. And you know, a table, a meal is the best place in the world to communicate. You notice how Jesus says, 
I stand at the door and knock. If any man will hear my voice and open the door, I'll come into him and we'll eat with him. And what's the central ceremony of the Christian church? This is my body which is broken for you. Take eat. Feed on me within your heart by faith. This is my blood shed for you. Drink ye all of it. It is a meal. The heart of a Christian is that kind of communion. Meal time is the most important time in all of your family. And so we sat down. We talked. We got to the end. We were sitting there. And he looked over at me and he called me Papa. He said, Papa, I've become very interested in philosophy. He said, uh, I'd love to know more about philosophy and I intend to learn more. I said, great. That's where you get your questions. You don't get very far if you don't have the right questions. You can't find the right answers if you don't have the right questions. But then that's why you need to know the scripture, because there's where you'll find the answers to those. He looked right back at me and said, oh, Papa, don't give me that line. I said, what do you mean? Oh, he said, I know the Bible. He said, uh, grew up in a Christian home, went to Sunday school and church all my life, went to a Christian university, took Bible courses. I know the Bible. So I looked at him and I said, honey, you cannot imagine what a privilege it is to meet you. I can't tell you how excited I am to meet somebody finally. Who knows it? I said, you see, I've been working for 65 years on this thing. And I think I'm beginning to get on the margin of beginning to see a little of the glory of the thing. He said, oh, Papa. So we read the Greek New Testament every night, almost every night, the Gospel of John in Greek together. It's interesting you got humbler by the night. <laughs> I can tell you that freely because he laughs at it too. But uh, we have a great time together because, man, we've only gotten started. Wait a minute. I don't know about you. I've only gotten started on the richnesses that are here. But you see, uh, God wants to be our friend, and Abraham is listed as the friend of God. Now, notice who he is. Do you know he's the first great figure in Scripture? And the Old Testament and the New Testament takes him as the model for all of us. Now, you know, I'd have never done that. I think Moses was an infinitely greater man than Abraham was. <laughs> Moses shaped history like nobody else in human history except Jesus. And almost everything that's good, intellectually, scientifically, and otherwise, has some root connection with Moses. But he didn't take Moses. Or what about King David? He didn't take King David. Now, Jesus is the son of David. The Scripture doesn't take that David as the great model for us. Didn't take Isaiah or one of the prophets. Or even John the Baptist, Abraham. Now, you know what a surprise that is? Because Abraham's world was so different from yours and mine. And it is marked by the things that Abraham didn't have. Have you ever thought about the things that Abraham doesn't have? There was no church. There was no Bible. There were no Ten Commandments. There's no discussion in Abraham's life of heaven and hell. 
Can you preach the gospel without referring to them? <laughs> now, I believe in them. <laughs> but I'm just telling you about what was in Abraham's life. There was no cult, no religion, really, in the sense of a structured religion. There was no liturgy, like you find in Leviticus, Exodus and Leviticus. There was no sacrificial system. They had no festivals, Easter, Christmas, the other, like they had the three great festivals. There was no priesthood. It was just Abraham and God. Now, I'm fascinated that God identifies himself in the Scripture. I dare you to try to find how many times this line occurs in Scripture. The God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. <laughs> the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is the God of Abraham, and he's the first one mentioned. Uh, and as we say, he's the model for the New Testament, because in Romans 4, when Paul is looking for some example of salvation by grace through faith, of justification by faith, he takes Abraham. When in Galatians, he's trying to explain to these people who have come to know the Lord and have turned away what the heart of the faith is, he turns to Abraham. And when you get to Hebrews 11 in that list of the great people of faith, the longest section, the first great section, beginning with verse 6, is on Abraham. I think God was trying to teach me something. I'm an ordained clergyman. I spent a good bit of my life in church work, baptizing, serving communion, performing wedding ceremonies, preaching sermons, doing this kind of thing. But you know what Abraham tells me? All those things are secondary matters. That the crucial thing is that you have a conversational, personal friendship relationship with God. And it is that and that alone that makes the others significant. So here in here the scripture, the wisdom of the scripture, to let us know what is the central thing he's after. To know us so that we can know him. Now what was at the heart of Abraham's relationship to God? It was trust. And what's at the heart of a friendship? You trust a friend. Somebody reports to you about one of your close friends who's done something that would hurt you, and you say, no, he wouldn't do that. <laughs> or no, she wouldn't do that. Trust, personal trust. Trust so great that when God said, I want you to leave your home, or the Chaldees, your family, leave your securities here. Launch out. You don't know where you're going. I'm not even going to tell you where you will be. I want you to walk with me. I want to be the center of your life, and you follow me. And Abraham packed up and left. Now, somebody, I hesitate sometimes to use this as an illustration because of the problems we have today about the role of women. But you know the best example in my life of that is Elsie. Because when I was 21, she and I stood in front of an altar 
And I looked at her and said, I do. And she looked at me and said, I do. Are words important? Two puffs of air. Most significant thing I ever did. I do. Other than to say yes to Christ. We walked out of that church and sat down in the front of a borrowed car. And I looked over at her and thought in my uneasiness, am I hooked to her forever? And she never likes me to say that. That's what went through my head. And there was something inside me that said, yes. And the astounding thing is, Elsie left her family. Elsie left her friends. I had 300 bucks. She left her securities. And she's traveled with me, walked with me for 57 years. Most of the time, we've been in total agreement on what we should do. But one of the major decisions in our life, God said to me, this is what I want you to do. I didn't have a friend who thought I was doing right. Not a Christian friend. And Elsie didn't think so either. So what do you do? I said, you have to let me obey God. And she stuck with me. Why? She loved me. And somewhere there was a trust in there. She was committed to me. Now, that's what you get in Abraham. Who is it calls the tune on his life? From that point on, he may have wavered a time or two, but who is it calls the tune? It is God. To the extent that one day God says, I want you to sacrifice your son. And Abraham says, I don't understand this. But if you say it, I can't live if I don't trust you. If you're wrong, nothing matters. If you're wrong, nothing matters. And so he's ready to sacrifice his son. God says, I don't want your boy. I wanted you. Now I know I've got you fully. But you see, it's a trust. It's a personal, reciprocal relationship in which God is center. And you are attached to him and he has attached himself to you. How is that expressed? I love the way it's expressed in Genesis. God said to him, this is what I want out of you, Abraham. I want you to walk before me and be blameless before me. King James says, walk before me and be perfect. Now, what it means is keep our relationship straight. The emphasis there where the word perfect is used not on performance, it's on relationship. And you know, you can have a perfect relationship, a solid relationship, a good relationship, without perfect performance. Just ask Elsie about me. But what a joy our relationship is. (laughs) Now, I have to tack and turn at times when she's right, but uh, she loves me and the commitment has never been... I had a granddaughter who said to me, and I felt the anguish of the current generation, the insecurity of the current generation, She looked at me and said, Papa, can one man be faithful to one woman all of his days? And you know, I was glad I could look back and say, yes. You know why? Because God can capture your heart. And that's what you had in Abraham. 
God had captured his heart. And so, without rival or competitor, God was the center. And how is it expressed? In a walk. Now, I love that. I've tried to figure why I like that so much. But when Elsie and I were in college and courting, we'd courted for three years. The best days we had were hikes. And there was nobody but the two of us. And then, she's not entertained by something else. It's either you or nothing. <laughs> Unless it's the birds and the trees or something. But just the two of you together. And we got to know each other. And we got to where we liked each other. <laughs> you know, I, I know a lot of men that don't like their wives. I know a whale of a lot of women, too, that don't like their husbands. But they're hooked. I'm glad we got to the place where we liked each other. And we got a good chunk of it in walks, conversation. Now, you know, you never walk with anybody if you don't like them, except when you want something out of him. <laughs> Why do you take walks with somebody? You like them. God says, I'd like for you to spend the rest of your days walking with me. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. The rest of the scripture picks that up. The strongest word to describe the pattern of life of the believer is walk. It's in the Old Testament. Halak, when you get to the New Testament, peripateo, it is a walk. Now, it's interesting. Our, our translations cover that up. Because oftentimes our translations will say things like, uh, conduct yourselves. <laughs> when behind it, the verb is walk. Or it will say, live. When behind it, the word is walk. But you get it crystal clear in John, 1 John. You remember this passage? I love the way 1 John begins. Do you notice how materialistic it is? We declare to you what was from the beginning, what we've heard with our ears, we've seen with our eyes, we have looked at and we've touched with our hands, we've handled him. God that you can handle. That's what Jesus did for us. Then he says, this is the message we've heard from him. And proclaim to you that God is light, and in him is, there is no darkness at all. And 1 John 1, 6, if we say we have fellowship with him and are walking in darkness, we lie. If you say you're a Christian and you're not walking with him, John says you're a liar. The Christian life is a walk. He says we lie and we do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light... We have fellowship one with another in the blood of Jesus Christ. His Son cleanses us from all sin. Now, how do you keep clean? You keep clean with him the same way I keep clean with Elsie. When I find out there's a tension, say, wait a minute, how do we clear this? Don't let it sit there. Don't let it stay. Don't let it corrupt your relationship. Get it clean. And he says, that's the way I want you to live with me. And the pattern? way back in the beginning of Scripture, in Abraham. So that the first figure which is used is that of friendship. I'd like to know if you've come to the place where you look forward to times with him. Do you have prayer time and quiet time out of duty? Or do you find your heart leaping to get there? There is a place in grace where your heart leaps to get there. And you, you get into it and you want to spend more time. You know, I'm convinced the greatest gift God ever gave me was hunger. And he gave it. I don't get any credit for it. He put it in me. 
And he'll put it in anyone who will give him a chance. Hunger for him. You're safe when that hunger is intense enough. When that hunger is stronger than anything else in your life, you're safe. Because you, it'll keep bringing you back to him. So there's the first figure. Now, the second thing that comes is a political figure. And that's the kingdom. You know, you don't have that concept until you get to uh, Exodus. And you get it spelled out in Exodus 19, where God has now brought a whole people, a nation, out of bondage in Egypt and brought them through the wilderness, and he's brought them to Sinai. And there at Sinai, he enters into a covenant with them. It is a covenant relationship of God with a people, with a nation. And he says, you're to be a kingdom of priests for me and a holy nation. Now, when you have a nation, you have to have political structure, don't you? You have to have a legal system, and so you get a law. You can't have a nation without a legal system. You have to have officials, and so you get officers. And ultimately, it developed into Saul and then David's kingdom, where you have the kingdom of Israel. And you have a national entity where people recognize themselves the way you'll notice after September the 11th, the emergence of the American flag. And you find people that have been sort of critical of America suddenly standing up and identifying. They say, I'm an American, I'm an American. Isn't it interesting that every person in the world has a nationality? I love the universality of these figures. When we get to the family one, everybody you've ever met has a father and a mother. Family is universal. And when you get to the nuptial one, everybody you've ever met is either male or female. The universality of these figures, so that nobody would be left out and nobody would be missed and all could understand. And so, you get the concept of the kingdom of God. That's a very familiar thing in the synoptic gospels, a very familiar phrase, isn't it? The kingdom of God. Do you remember how in the 13th chapter of Matthew, Jesus gives this long chapter of parables? And the parables normally begin with, the kingdom of God is like. John doesn't mention it, but when Jesus begins to explain the soils, he talks in terms of the kingdom. You get to chapter 21 of Matthew, and the last five chapters, those that last week of Jesus' life in Jerusalem, he talked a great deal about the kingdom and again gives us some parables. Kingdom of heaven is like a father who prepared a wedding feast for his son and so forth. Now, when you get to John, John is different. The phrase, the kingdom of God, which is so common in the synoptic, occurs twice in the Gospel of John, the kingdom of God. And it occurs in the passage that we read from Nicodemus. Where Nicodemus says, Jesus, we know no man could do these things that you're doing if God weren't with him. And he says, Nicodemus, except you're born again, you cannot even see the kingdom. And then two verses, the kingdom of God. And then two verses later he says, except you are born from above, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. So he's talking to Nicodemus about the kingdom of God. Now, there are a number of interesting things in John about the kingdom, though it is not referred to with the specificity that it is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. 
you'll remember that when he's standing before Pilate, Pilate looks at him and says, are you the king of the Jews? I wonder why Pilate raised that question. But Jesus says, my kingdom, which is a concession he has one, and that he is the king, my kingdom is not of this world. Why is John reticent about talking about it the way the others? I think the reason is because God, through John, is so concerned that we know what the essence of the kingdom is. That we know that the nature of the kingdom of God. Political structure, yes, because he's sovereign Lord and he will reign over it. But you see, the Jews had a false notion of what the kingdom would be like. It's interesting that Jesus looks at Nicodemus and says, Are you the teacher in Israel and you don't understand these things? Now, the NRSV misses that because it says, are you a teacher? But the, Hebrew, but the Greek says, are you the teacher? And these guys are Jews. And in Hebrew, the superlative is expressed just that way. The teacher means the greatest of all teachers. The greatest of all teachers. That's the Hebrew superlative. If you are the bright one, then you're the brightest of all. Or if you're the pretty one, you're the prettiest of all. So Jesus says to him, are you the teacher? Now I think that that's the reason Nicodemus is the one that went to Jesus. He was the best the temple had to offer. He was the expert on the kingdom. And Jesus said, you got a PhD in it, but son, you haven't learned yet. Because the only way you can see the kingdom is to have something happen to you that hasn't happened to you yet. It's not an intellectual thing. It's something you enter, and you have to be born again to see it, and then to to enter it. Now, you'll remember that at the feeding of the 5,000, the next day they chased Jesus down and wanted to crown him king. But the reason they had to chase him down was because when he sensed what they wanted to do, he disappeared on them. He was not about to let them crown him king. Why? Because they'd have crowned him as the kind of king that he refused to be. The kind of king that he was not. It's like that word God. You can say God means something that God is very unhappy about and has nothing to do with the one true God. And they would have crowned him king, but he wouldn't have been the kind of king he really is. And so he disappeared on them. You will remember that in the triumphal entry, the common people cried out, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. They were ready to crown him king there. But Jesus wouldn't let them do that. And then Pilate looks at him and says, Are you the king? See, Israel, the Jews, were looking for a king. But they were looking for one kind of king, and he's not that kind of king. He's another kind of king. Now, he is king. And he is sovereign. John picks it up, particularly in the book of Revelation, where there's no question about it. You remember that magnificent introduction to the the book of Revelation? You get those seven letters to the seven churches in the first three chapters. Then you get chapter four. And suddenly, before John, heaven opens up. The door opens, and he can look straight into heaven. And here are the cherubim singing in Here are the elders casting their crown, bowing down before Christ, and the 24 elders casting their crowns before God. And in the hands of the one who sits on the throne is a book 
and it is sealed with seven seals. And that book is your future and mine, all the futures. And uh, they check heaven out, and there's nobody worthy to unroll it. They check the earth out, and there's nobody worthy to loose those seals. They check out the underworld, and there's nobody worthy to loosen those seals. And John says, how can we know what's coming? And he weeps. And the heavenly creature said, don't weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he turns to see the lion of the tribe of Judah. And you know what he sees? The translations have difficulty expressing the beauty of this. Here is the throne of God. And standing in the middle of the throne, in Mesothronut, in the midst of the throne, is the Lamb slain from the foundations of the world. I remember when that first came, thundering home to me, I was pastoring. You know what went through my head? Mary's baby has come a long way. <laughs> the one who un unrolls history, the one who opens every day, opens every chapter, is behind in some way or other every event in human history. The Lord of it all, sovereign. It is Mary's baby, one of us. God's son who became, took on himself flesh like yours and mine, and he reigned. So you get that in the fifth chapter. You get to the end of the sixth chapter, and he has begun unrolling history, and the judgments have begun to roll across the earth. And you get that sixth one, and you find the chief men, the mighty men, the captains, the emperors, the kings, the pre presidents, the generals, all the power figures in the world are fleeing from the wrath of him that sits on the throne, the Lamb. That Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. All the world's powers are fleeing from him, pleading for Mount Everest to cover them and protect them from Jesus, the Lamb. Now, he's the king. He's sovereign today. Satan has been overcome. Final chapter's not in, but the victory's been won. And he reigns. And you get to chapter 19, and you see him riding on a great white horse, the armies of heaven following him, crown on his head, two-edged sword coming from his mouth, and on his robe and on his thigh written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And he shall reign forever and forever. He is the kurios. That's the Greek word for Lord. That's the word they use for Caesar. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? <laughs> Caesar, Augustus, ruling over the world. And the term that's used for him, separating him from all mortal men, that's the term they use for Jesus. Now, it had special significance for a Jew. Because, you see, when they translated the Old Testament in it, from Hebrew into Greek, they came to that name above all names, the name is called the, the four-letter word, the Trisagion, the four holy letters. Comes in Hebrew, it's the equivalent of Y-H and W-H. And it was so sacred that the Jews said, we don't dare pronounce it. 
And so nobody knows how it really was pronounced. Some German scholars put vowels in and made Jehovah out of it. But they did that by taking the vowels of the Hebrew word for Lord and putting them in the consonants of the Hebrew name of God. So you read Adonai, but what is really there is Y-H-W-H, the name above all names. When they translated that into the Greek language, which was the Bible which Paul used and the New Testament church used, they translated that name above all names as Kurios. So that for a Jew, he had the trouble when they called Jesus Kurios, they got uneasy because that's the supreme title for the God of all gods of the Old Testament, the God of Moses. And now, the scripture says he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And the kingdom that he has, the Father, has given to him. Did you know there was a time when there was no kingdom and there was a time when it will be put behind? Because you see, uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, we are told, the day will come when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Christ. And then he will return the kingdom to the Father from whence it came. Did you know that before God was ever sovereign, he was a father? I missed the wisdom of the Apostles' Creed all my life until the last two years. I believe in God the Father Almighty. The sovereignty comes second. He's first of all a father. Now, uh, this kingdom is different. How is it different? Some interesting things. One of them is you have to be born into it to get into it. You don't sign up. You don't even volunteer. You have to be born to get into this kingdom. You know, one of the things I love is before we get through these figures all get mixed up with each other. It's as much as to say, your human language is not rich enough to describe what I want to tell you. So I'll have to use a whole set of figures to describe it. And so now we've got a political entity, the kingdom of God, that you have to have a new birth to get into. And when you get into, it's the Father who has established it through his Spirit for his Son. It's the Father who has established the kingdom through his Spirit for the Son for Christ to reign over. And the kingdom is ruled by our brother. Because Jesus is the firstborn of many brethren and sisters. Well now, the incredible thing is, the Father established the kingdom and the Son reigns over it, and he's my brother. And we are joint heirs with him. And in Revelation 3.21, you know what it says? Behold, I stand at the door and knock, in verse 20. If any man hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him and will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne. Now, at the beginning of Revelation, John sees the throne of God. And standing in the middle of the throne is Jesus the Lamb. 
And when you get to the end of the book of Revelation, you know who's sitting there with him? You and I, his bride. It's a little different kind of kingdom, isn't it? But that is the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, one of the things that I want to say, wrapping up this section, is that uh, some way or other we have to get Jesus back into our history because we've shut him out of our history. Most of us know him in our hearts, but we really don't believe that he's running history, but he is. And the world around us doesn't believe that he's running history, but he is. And that has to be made known. Now, this is tricky to talk about in our day. But there is no such thing as civil religion from God's point of view. There is only the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And somewhere or other, we've got to get these two things together. And when we do, there will be conflict. It's inevitable. It was in the first century when the Romans said, if you'll just repeat after me, Caesar is kurios, drop these drops of liquid before his image, you'll be okay. And they said, but we can't say that. We have to say that Jesus is kurios. And so they fed him to the lion. Now, you know, that's the story through history. I've had a close association with a missionary organization in this country called, used to be called the Oriental Missionary Society, now it's called OMS International. It was founded by the husband and two other persons, a Japanese and another American, of the husband of the woman who gave to us the book Streams in the Desert, Letty Kalman, Charlie Kalman. They went to Japan in the first decade of the last century. And they put the gospel in every home in Japan. They got government maps and put a gospel portion in every home in Japan. I suspect that's the only time in human history that that's happened for a whole nation. And out of that, there was a tremendous burst of the Christian gospel. The greatest explosion of the Christian gospel in Japan came, say, between 1920 and 1935. And then the Second World War came along. That work was after the war was shattered because of the war. This spring I visited Japan for the 100th anniversary of the founding of 10 different churches that looked back to the same founders to begin them. And it was a remarkable experience. But uh, great pain in that story too. Because when the Japanese decided to, you know, to conquer their world, and we get Pearl Harbor, they had to do something about the Christian church in their own country. So they took all the denominations and put them into one so they'd have better control over the Christian church. And when they did, they uh, quizzed each denominational group about what they believed, and each group expressed it. Now, the OMS work had a problem because they had a very simple way of explaining the gospel. They had picked up the leaders of it from A.B. Simpson, what he called the fourfold gospel. 
That was that Jesus is Savior, he's Sanctifier, he's Healer, and he's Coming King. Now, there were a lot of other Christians in Japan who believed that Christ is going to come back, but it was not a cardinal part of their doctrine. But here were these pastors who, when they said, what do you, what do you believe? Believing Jesus is Savior, Sanctifier, Healer, and Coming King. The Japanese authorities said, what do you mean Coming King? They said, well, the Jesus whom we worship is going to come back one day in power and glory. They said, well, what's he going to do when he comes back? They said, he's going to reign. He's going to rule over the earth. And so the Japanese leader said, what about Hirohito? And these humble pastors said, when Jesus comes back, Hirohito will kneel just like everybody else to Jesus, because Jesus is Kuriyas. And the conflict was there. There were more martyrs in that church than in any other church in Japan. Why? Because of the conflict, the tension between Jesus' kuriyas and a world's kuriyas. Now, how long can you avoid that issue? Sooner or later. You will remember that Paul said, if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is kurios, and believe in your heart that God hath raised him from the dead. And if God raised him from the dead, nobody's going to raise Hirohito from the dead. Nobody's going to raise Hitler. Nobody's going to raise any of the rest of them. Paul says, if you will believe in your heart, if you'll confess with your mouth that Jesus is kurios, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, which means he reigns, then you'll be saved. That makes me understand with that tension, a passage which I had a long trouble with for a long time in 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul says that no man can say Jesus is Lord, no person can say Jesus is Kuria, except with the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus was saying to Nicodemus. It's not a kingdom of flesh, it's a kingdom of the Spirit. And when he comes into your heart, he'll wedge you to Jesus. And he'll give you the grace that even if it means death itself, you can say, here I stand, Jesus is Kurios. And he is my Lord, my brother, and the son of the same father. And we are one in him.